Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 2. My name is James Laidler, Australian poet, writer and your host. Today's episode will be deep diving into the poem Lagoon by David Musgrave. This poem plunges us headfirst into the murky waters of Australia's colonial past. We'll hold our breath as we're swept along by the turbulent currents of Musgrave's poetic imagination. This poem, a meditation on Musgrave's own forebears who settled the hard country beyond the Blue Mountains in the 1830s, will leave us partially drowned and out of breath. The questions of identity, inheritance and belonging will bubble to the surface in this mesmerising poem, as Musgrave wrestles with and reconciles himself to a present reality born out of what he describes as silent massacres and murmurs of a haunted past. This is an important poem for people to hear because it encourages us to take seriously the work we all need to do in remembering and connecting ourselves to our forebears without sanitising or romanticising the past. It's a poem that is honest, raw and penitent. And in examining the past so honestly, perhaps it provides us with a roadmap for navigating our own modern journey in life. So let's take a listen, shall we? May I present you with Lagoon. By David Musgrave. Lagoon by David Musgrave. This is where I come from, if it's true to say I come from somewhere, not just anywhere south of the imagination. Where they came from ended up warty hills of the Monaro or an Irish quag. It's Lagoon with wind-tussocked, wrinkled hills worn down to a murmur that claims me. Flat-skied, convict-shaped earth. The barren sweep from Tannis Mount knuckled with Bathurst quartz, small and obedient noon shadows. This is where justice jammed them, impatient and impenitent, forebears transported for a brace of crimes, possession of a stolen lamb highway robbery and other nameless filchings cancelled by oblivion. It's hard to tell exactly where it was. The lagoon has forgotten itself. Drowned under Chifley's dam's green skin brailed by metallic rain. Or a mired bend in Campbell's River, where dragonflies whirr in a spectral frenzy like solid drops of petrol darting in the sun. I have inherited their future born of silent massacres, patient weathering of the cold fastness of hills and endurance of each summer's baked mirages. They mastered the art of sticking to the narrow furrows of their lives, whereas I have learnt only the art of streets, sailing between their gutted shores on that new ocean, traffic. Every trace of them has vanished There is a school there now, where children yet to learn that dreams are what make death real, play in the stark sun. 
horse studs gather along the creek and they stand there, fluid flanks shiny in the wintered light, chewing and staring down imposters in their midst. Time has stolen it. Evaporated family mysteries like the slow death of a photograph of the old farm. Like neap days, pinched of history. So welcome back to the Lit Poetry Podcast. David Musgrave is a poet with a practice spanning four decades with his latest collection, Selected Poems, being published in the UK on August 23rd. His work has won and been shortlisted for numerous awards, including the Broadway, Newcastle, Josephine Ulrich, Bruce Dorr and Grace Levin Poetry Prizes. His work is distinctive for the way it thinks as much as it feels and for its wide literary and cultural reference. He has published seven collections and is currently working on a collection of prose poems, another collection of poems based around the recuperation of lost voices, and a collection of poems called Mishearing, created by speech recognition software, which sounds very fascinating indeed. He is also a novelist, with Glissando, published in 2010, shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction, and he is currently finalising his long-awaited novel, The Obituary Collector. He teaches creative writing at the University of Newcastle and is the founder and managing director of the independent literary publisher Puncher and Watman. So welcome, David, to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, James. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, it was very enjoyable uh, spending some time with your poetry and uh, turning Lagoon into uh, what it's ended up becoming. Um, and I'm really excited about when it's going to be published very shortly. David, just might start, actually, um, for our audience, just to talk a little bit about uh, your background uh, as a poet. I've given a little bit of an introduction, but I'm sure there's, there's much more. In particular, I suppose, what is it that's drawn you to poetry in your life and perhaps even uh, why you perhaps see it as an important part of our culture? Sure, <coughs> sure. Um, I, I, I guess um, I always wanted to be a writer, from when I was very young, and that never that desire never really wavered or changed. Um, and then I found myself at the age of 18, 19 writing poems, and I didn't particularly know why. And then it just uh, kept happening. And then I realised after the passage of time that I that I really was a poet, um, and that and that that was the kind of writer I was. Um, sometimes I think um, some writers have. It takes them a while to work out who they are or what they are. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's in a nutshell how it how it came about. Mm, so you see yourself more as a as a writer. I know you've um, written fiction as well, and you continue to write fiction. But what what's the de- defining quality of poetry that is so much you? What is it about poetry in particular that draws your allegiance? Um, <clears throat> there's there's an element of excitement to poetry, which I think is. Uh, when you're attuned to language and what language can do at the level of thought and consciousness, mm. um, and I think that's that's something that either it, just about everybody who is brought to poetry will will see that and will be affected by it. 
Um, for me, it affects me in the way that I want to do it. Um, I find that even when I'm not thinking about poetry, when I'm consumed by other things, poems pop out, uh, generally at the rate of about one every three weeks, or de depending on how busy I am with other things. So it's a kind of the rhythm of um, living, really, is punctuated by the production of poetry. So when you say they pop out, do you have a process when, when an idea comes upon you or something? Is there a process, a journal or something that you engage with to get things down? And and over the years, have you lost many uh, poems, perhaps because of uh, you've been in strange situations? or um, you know? I've probably lost a couple, but not, not as many as you might think. I, I, for a long time, I used to keep a, a, a small notebook with me at all times. Um, and in fact, that's how Lagoon was written. I was actually um, staying at a, a farm... Uh, at a locality near Oberon called Duck Malloy and uh, I went with the friends I was staying with for a drive up to Chifley's Dam and I'd been to Lagoon before as a younger boy and this time I said oh can we just have a poke around and we went and had a look at a few things and I was writing down reactions to what I was seeing in the notebook and um, a couple of months later when I was uh, pulling the notebook out to start work on the poem, I realised the poem was more or less formed. Um, that, that's unusual. Normally I've, I've got scraps of paper, uh, notebooks I use for work, etc., all half filled with lines and scribbles and generally what I try and do is, over time, gather them together and see what's there and, you know, shape them. That's, that's the hard work. That might be very fascinating for our listeners. So the genesis of a, a poem from what you're saying, that you have lines um, in a journal sometimes. And it, so there's a process to it um, often with, with poems, is there? Or, or I mean, sometimes do they just pop out quite quickly and naturally and other times there are a long, arduous sort of journey through your imagination and, and discipline? They're, they're more often uh, long, arduous journeys with discipline. But, you know, um, five, ten, maybe five percent of the poems I've written have come out in a rush or all in one go. They're, they're, the, they're the weird ones. They sort of, they, they take you by surprise and, and the element of will's not involved. Um, with the other ones, I think, you know, you, you'll start with a line or an image or, or just, a, just an idea sometimes and it, and it worries at you and then you start worrying it, at it back. And then, and then you end up with something that you know may or may not work, but that's it's that process that um, it's it's not necessarily arduous, but it takes patience, and you have to use your intuition. Is part of the patience also on a psychological level? Because when I'm reading this poem, um, Lagoon. I detect or I feel like there's a, there is um, an inherent honesty in it. It's, there's a lot of self-introspection, but also thinking about society as well and heritage and a whole lot of things. But I imagine there's always the temptation to force a poem uh, in a way that may not be honest. I, I feel like there's an honest searching for a truth that is troubling in some ways. Um, so is that part of the difficulty of... of in the process of writing, aside from craft and all that sort of stuff, it's also this psychological journey that you go on of well, integrity, I suppose. Yeah, you, you talked about truth. I mean, the, the the truth of a poem is not what the poem refers to, but rather how the poem moves. 
um, through the, through the air and through another person's mind and through your own mind. And uh, you know, in the pro even in a case where I'm more or less lucky enough to have this poem come out without thinking about it. Obviously in the process of typing it up, typing it up and shaping it, there was a lot, you know, there were changes that were made because some things don't ring true, some things need to be improved, the, the ending changed um, a little bit from the very first version of it because uh, there was something that wasn't quite right about it. Um, and uh, I think it's hard, it's hard to, to describe what, what it is about knowing when a poem's right and when it's not right, but there's defi definitely the element of if you will a poem to be something that it doesn't want to be, the result shows and the result is bad art. Um, if you're lucky enough to have arrived at something which is has that sort of um, integrity of itself, that's good fortune, but I think it also comes about through being able to let your guard down, let your filters down, let your inner sensor down, let, let, to let down the guard that um, might be a little bit embarrassed to fail or to expose oneself, and then, um, and then reap the reward from that. Yeah, no, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, there's a bit of Seamus Heaney, I think, in, in that sort of understanding <laughs> of poetry too, about not getting in the way of a poem and allowing it to sort of do its do its thing and your job is not to basically ruin it. <laughs> in, yeah, 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 yeah. Try, try not to, or certainly try not to let your, um, let your, let your sense of self-importance yes. in too much. Um, yes. you, have to, you have to have a sense of yourself. You yes. can't write a poem without a sense of self, but one's self is not necessarily important subject matter. It's rather, it's mm. a, you're an important pattern or something, a configuration or something. Yeah, no, that's, it's fascinating. Um, and, and, and personally, I think this poem um, yeah, really took me on a journey into myself and to my own roots and thinking about you know, who I am as an Australian um, and uh, the heritage. So maybe we could just stop there for a second and talk about that because um, I suppose there's questions about Australian identity here that I think that the poem touches upon. Um, and in particular, you know, how our knowledge of the past can inform and influence our understanding of our present. So can you tell us a bit about that aspect of the poem and, and, and particularly maybe even um, wed it to your journey when you um, you said you actually went to Lagoon and you, you were inspired by the time. So that event and going and seeing locations. So what was the process and what are those connections? And then what was the intentionality sure. there about, you know, between the past and the present and what you're trying, trying to do with this poem? Um, I, I call this poem, a, it's a mitochondrial poem because it's really about my mother's family. Um, I was one of those... Uh, products of an unusual marriage. Um, I was born in the 60s, but my parents were born in the 50s, mother being Catholic and my father being Anglican. Um, so the sectarian divide was still well and truly alive at that time. And uh, growing up, uh, I was much closer to my mother's extended family, who were all uh, Catholic, um, but I was not a Catholic. Um, and so I felt that I belonged in a Catholic family 
uh, and I felt much closer to my mother's relatives, even her extended relatives, than I did to my father's family. And um, when we first, the mum's family was very clannish. She was born in Bathurst. Um, her great great grandparents were the convicts that settled outside, were settled outside of Bathurst. And that family, um, you know, they, I know all my second cousins, you know, it's that kind of a family. And um, th th uh, one of the first family reunions we had um, was actually in Bathurst and we went out to the farm at Lagoon that my great, 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 grand I think he's, no, great, great, great grandfather Owen Guggarty, G-U-G-G-R-T-Y, um, was uh, settled on and his son um, continued that farm and uh, his daughter was my great-grandmother. So, so in many ways it was sort of, it's, it's sort of like a, an identification with what um, historically might have been the less fortunate or less prosperous side of the family. Mm. And, I th and I think that's often a common um, phenomenon if, with some people. Some people are much more comfortable identifying with the winners. Mm. <laughs> mm. I was more comfortable identifying with the losers, as it were. Mm. Yeah, well, that, there's multiple levels, I think, in the poem with that. So there's the family side and identifying with your mother's side, which you've... Um, placed in that sort of category but then there's also the lines about you know um, the born of silent massacres which I, I assume is some sort of reference to um, indigenous people in the area or a history of conflict or oh, I might be misreading this yeah no it's, it was very much a, a reference to the indigenous people um, there when Bathurst was first settled around about 1813, I think in the first few years of, the, of there being um, soldiers and settlers there, there was martial law because there was a there was an insurrection, quite a, quite a um, successful insurrection being um, carried out and by um, Windradine, I think was the leader and his people, um, and eventually that was suppressed. Um, I read histories of Bathurst in the area, but I couldn't really... Yeah, there's no records that I could see which indicated when uh, massacres had taken place. Obviously, I lacked the skill of a, you know, a professional um, historian. Um, since working at the University of Newcastle, uh, Professor Lyndall Ryan here has produced a massacre map, and there is a massacre, massacre that took place with uh, three um, people, um, in the 1820s, I think, um, not far from Lagoon, but but I mean, when I say not far, about 50 miles away. Uh, so that's one that was definitely documented. And at the time of writing Lagoon, I was aware of you know claims by historians like Henry Reynolds um, that that the frontier warfare was far more extensive uh, than people had realised. And of course, there was the uh, reaction against that black arm, the so-called black arm mm. band view yeah, of history. Yeah, through wind shuttle on the rest of Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I followed that with interest because because mm. I thought, well, where, where did where did my where did my folk fit into that? Yeah, and, and that's what I see in the poem: this sort of uh, trying to reconcile this past of of you know and, and your, your mother's side, you know, you know, who have experienced these, you know, what you describe as nameless filchings and really difficult. Um, 
probably baptism of fire coming to Australia to, to find a place and to find an identity and find a living. And yet, I'll lay it on top of that, you've got the, the Indigenous question and experience, how that all mixes in. And then your generations later trying to understand that context of, of all of this um, and then how it plays into your own imagination of who you are, I, I get the sense. I think... Look, spot you're spot on. The um, the big thing was that in the night when I was a little boy, uh, my father's family history was you know fairly well documented. Um, they were they were convicts as well, but they were sort of English convicts and Irish and English free settlers. Whereas Mum's lot, um, from what we knew, we knew that they were convicts but we just didn't really know much about them and it was really in the late 1980s when um, that there was that upsurge in genealogy in Australian culture and there was also a willingness to take on the convict heritage whereas in previous in the previous generation and certainly in the generation before that it was a more or less a taboo subject um, and it was pe- people wanted to disavow or if they did, if they didn't disavow, they wanted they wanted to have that belief that, oh well, they only came here for, the, for because they stole a pin or because they stole a chicken or something like that. Whereas um, some of the crimes that I know that my forebears committed, you know, some of them were lucky not to be executed because they were there was violence involved, um, and um, so so there was that sense of um, you know ten. 10 or more years before riding Lagoon, I guess, there was that excitement of discovering that, you know, we had a lot of convicts um, and that we knew we we could actually find the the records of their trials. We knew um, a little bit about their lives. We knew, you know, some of them died young. Some of them had accidents. Some of them had children who had horrendous lives, um, you know, losing all their children in childbirth, for example. Um, and it was very interesting to see, to, to think that um, certainly on my mother's side, the ascension th- from uh, more or less a peasant sort of um, stock through to you know being middle class, being teachers and things like that, it was achieved over generations, bit by bit. And I think that's a very common story in it, Australia. Yeah, I think it is, and it's and it's fascinating that that is the story for so many. Uh, Australians um, coming from those those roots. Um, it's really interesting, but you know there is this sense of um, a haunting. I think through the poem, it comes across. I mean, I think that's why I chose the music I did. There's this real sense that um, you've got some lines there about the school and um, the horses at the end, and and so I've sort of layered sounds of um, school children and stuff, almost you know thinking about the ghosts of of these and how people are currently walking over this layered history that, that is all around us but we, we often we can't see because we're, we're, li- you know, we're living mostly thinking about where we're going to be in the future or we're in the present but that that rootedness to the past is kind of absent but but the poem I think makes an argument that that is very very important to lay down an understanding and to connect with that past so is that part of your intent with the poem and, and if it is why, why, do, why would you consider that important? Um. Uh, I guess um, there was a, knowing that the, the, the my mother's family had lived in that place, more or less on the same farm for a few generations. 
I think there's a deep-seated anxiety in um, well, non-Indigenous Australian populations about um, belonging to this place. Um, and there's a sense in which we've, we've become accustomed to this idea of place being a very important aspect of Indigenous cultures. And, and, and then we've, uh, the, the non-Indigenous people have sort of, not exactly appropriated that idea, but sort of taken it on as something that is um, uh, important. So there's definitely, definitely an element of that. And it, and it was important too, because uh, in other branches of the family, there really wasn't that kind of rootedness in country as there was in my mother's side of things. So there's that, there's that aspect, I think. The other aspect is just sometimes the irrecoverability of the past can actually sort of strike you with the force of a punch. And there's a little bit of that as well, that not knowing that I could never know about these people um, in full, um, but knowing that knowing that because of that clannish closeness of that side of the family that somehow it felt it felt important mm. yeah no i think that makes a lot of a lot of sense and I, and I think that would resonate with people listening to the podcast and and that's why this poem is so effective in my mind because i think it's quite universal it's not it's your story but the connections to other people's stories would would you know i think mirror this pretty closely I mean, it makes me think, and the, the honesty I like about it, because I think that the, part of the dilemma I think in Australia that we face is that too often we have um, a, a sanitization of the of the past. So we have a um, a very, uh, I suppose, uh, nationalistic um, call for mateship and and all the virtues of the you know Australian diggers and. But that is in isolation from, from, from the shameful parts of our history. So it's kind of like we have the mature approach which can balance up um, the positivity um, and the qualities that have grown out of um, you know, white people being here. Um, and there are, there are positive things and there are achievements. But sure. the problem is you can't think about that in isolation. Um, without understanding that the flip of the, the coin is is, um, is the, the deep and abiding shame that we should feel um, at what what what, you know, what we've taken from this country as well. Um, and the poem, I think, seems to have that tension in it, which is really important. <coughs> that tension is very important. Um, sometimes the ability to address that in a direct and meaningful way is not possible. Mm. It's not possible in my family. I'm not of Indigenous descent. Um, I, I'm not aware of um, what kind of interactions there were between my forebears and the various in Indigenous populations where they ended up. Um, there's evidence <laughs> um, of attitude. There's photographs that from the 1890s where um, people are posing before the camera in a picnic with shotguns that's that's rather disturbing um, and there's evidence of um, transactions that would have occurred on the Hawkesbury and um, Punchbowl in particular in Quakers Hill where it's almost certain there would have been indigenous populations at the time when this land was being transacted upon by my forebears but sometimes I think you, it's also uh, a question you address indirectly um, and an example of what I mean by that is that the 
ancestor to which I referred before, Owen Guggerty, Irish convict, transported for um, basically pointing a shotgun at someone's head. Um, he and three other young men were transported from Westmeath. He was, you know, so it would have served some time, ended up out at Lagoon, and uh, a couple of years later was given a wife. So one of those convict ships that came out full of women. Um, she managed to hang around with him for about two years, long enough for a son to be born, and then she racked off. And what we know about her is that she lived in Sydney, uh, died in Newington Asylum, the same year, almost the same date as Owen Guggerty, most likely supported herself through prostitution, um, almost certainly. And that's when you actually think, well, hang on, there's a, there's a, there's a story here which is these people um, being treated as a kind of a weapon with which to attack the land, um, paired up in ways that have no regard for individual um, happiness. I, I've got no idea if this woman, this my great-great-grandmother, I've got no idea where she came from, a little bit of an idea, a um, little bit of a story is emerging, but that's a really miserable life. It is, and, and all players in it, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, are, are yeah. victims of that system, I suppose, is what you're pointing I, to. It's the broader, it's that broader aspect that, that, that the, um, I, that, that, that's an aspect of the, the uh, history that should not be romanticised, and right. I don't, I don't see those kinds of stories leading to anything to do with mateship or egalitarianism mm. at all. In fact, mm. I, I see them as possibly um, feeding into a kind of a deep scepticism, um, mm. which might be said to underpin Australian culture. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. Um, and I think the advantage of a, the poetic form here too is that it gives you a story and you know, rather than reading an essay um, on these issues, a, a poem functions at a very different level. It just, it just leaves you in this place of tension, I think, um, and allows your imagination just to sink into the, the bedrock of this reality that is all around us. Um, and it does a different sort of work on a person. It's not affirming and it's not denying. And mm. so, it, as you know, Philip Sidney would have said, so it's, um, it's, it's. I guess you know, if it's if it has succeeded, it's because it embodies those those disquiet, dis, dis, disquieting aspects of the language. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, just to move it on, on a little bit here, um, some of the lines, I suppose, one of the things that I've noticed about the, the poem, shifting focus a little bit, I think it's, it's very, it's a troubling poem, it, it takes you on this sort of tricky uh, journey, but it's incredibly musical, but it uses a whole lot of things like assonance and consonants, which I, I love. Um, particularly there's a, there's a lot of I think it's the harsh consonant sounds on a lot of the, the words you know tussocked and wrinkled and you know the sounds there with the K's and the rest of it really has this sort of sonic effect in building up the tension 
can you, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, as a poet, the value or the intentionality of those sort of strategies in, in your work? And, and do you actually purposely, you know, consciously look for that sort of stuff or does it come out more naturally or are you always revising and, and looking for those um, sound effects? Uh, look, it, it's, it, it's, they definitely come out naturally. That's, the, that's, just, that's just a given. But sometimes one's natural ear or what comes out, you know, has problems with sense or sometimes there are problems with sound where the alliteration is like having a sledgehammer applied to your skull. Uh, sometimes the assonance is just, it's so musical that it's actually saccharine and sickly. So you have to do a bit of work there. But I think that um, it's the... It's the unexpectedness of sometimes of the oral qualities, which um, uh, it's hard to explain uh, rationally, but it's it's not something I can will into being. Uh, you can try sometimes. It's more that it happens. I, I recall on the day that I went to Lagoon with my friends and was making notes that it was in the middle of winter. Um, it's very cold around there. Oberon's one of the coldest parts of the state, um, and we were, we were not far from Oberon. And uh, I think we stopped it on top of Tanis Mount. We we actually knew it originally as Tanner's Mount, but that was the anglicisation of the name Tanis after it's an Indi Indian man after him. It was named. The wind there was quite a strong wind, and it was blowing through the grass, and the grass just looked as if it was kind of like a solidification of the currents of air so that was where wind tussock came from not not you know I wasn't thinking it up verbally I was trying to get mm. come to grips with that cold and the and the because it was such a cold day the, the Chifley Dam was actually green not blue and that's why it had that feeling of those public monuments that we see that are made of um, is it bronze and they, but they, they tarnish oh, yeah. and yeah, go and they green. And over age, yeah. Okay. And then, oh, yeah. yeah, well, that's a fascinating line, actually, when you're talking about uh, Chifley's Dam and you, and you describe it as green skinned, brailed by metallic rain. That was very um, evocative to me. Um, and the, the, using the word brailed, and instantly I'm thinking, you know, that you're reading basically the dam and it's got these layers of historical meaning on the surface. Um, I know, is that something that you came with, came up with on the spot or was it something you sort of put back into the poem after revising it or...? No, no, it was all came up on the spot. Um, I've mentioned the Gugatis. Um, the other family was the Costello family. Um, there was a, no, no relation to our former treasurer. <laughs> uh, but there's a guy, um, so my great-great-great-grandfather, William Costello, he died young. Um, he lived at a place called Campbell's River, and it just—it wasn't—it's not really clear where Campbell's River stops being Campbell's River and becomes Chifley Dam. And I'm—I'm still—I'm not even sure to this day. So I—we I, went to Chifley Dam, and I was under the impression that quite possibly where his farm had been may well have been underwater. And there was this sense of you know, the, the, because the surface was green, there was this sense of opacity. And the sense, and and I was, I guess, literalised. And there was, of course, a rain squall that came across, and it was like these little needles, sort of puncturing the surface of the dam. And it's, I, I guess, I was thinking of Louis Braille and his all, 
when he had that accident. So, you know, it's a combination of a, quite a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, well, it's, but it's fascinating how language works in that way, and I've interpreted as you looking at you know, the physicality of, the, of your environment and saying that it's got a message, you know, for the blind almost. Um, <laughs> rereading yeah. it actually quite, sounds quite good, but um, <laughs> it's, yeah, the reader has quite an impact on a poem actually, I think. Sure. We might finish by just, if you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, I sort of mentioned, um, I'm really fascinated with the idea of um, using speech software for poetry and what the hell that actually entails, because that's <laughs> quite fascinating. I've, I've just um, I've just finished a, an article on that, actually, which I, I'm hoping will be published in full in um, Text magazine. Mm. Um, it's something I've been doing for a long time, was taking poems reading them into a version of Word that still had speech recognition native to it. I think it's Word 2005. And then, you know, the, the poem gets transcribed into Word, then you've... It's obviously gobbledygook. And then uh, I spend time shaping it. And what fascinated me there was this notion that is the trace of the voice of the original poem still discernible? Um, and in some cases I think it was. And so over time I've put together about 20 or 25 of these poems and I, I just want to do a few more and then I'll be popping it together into a volume in the second half of this, or we are in the second half of this year, towards the end of this year and publishing that and um, it's leading to a lot of different research questions which I'm fascinated with, questions to do with style, poetic style. Um, can uh, one of the questions that it led to me asking was if a poet has a distinctive voice and often we feel that a poet does mm. um, can that voice be characterised by certain patternings of sounds, of, of phonemes mm. as it were mm. and I think sometimes and that's a question that I haven't answered yet but it, the way to answering it is a little bit complicated but there's a, there's a way to dis discovering that and um, I'm interested in working towards that. And also, of course, the question is, if I'm the one who shapes these misheard poems, to what extent is my voice entering into these poems? And can we can we discern that? Can we measure that? So that's a, that's a very... I mean, that's a legitimately... That's yeah, fascinating. That's really fascinating. Interesting, yeah. yeah it's also yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Well, with, with the poem, um, the, the reconceptualisation of your poem and myself reading it and putting it to music like what was did that change anything in your um, understanding of the poem because you would have been reading it for years and um... Um, I think I think when I read it I've uh, one of the things about the way it starts off is that it's a, it starts off with a trachaic sort of imperative this is where I come from if it's true I come from somewhere uh, uh, I come from yes this is where I come from if it's true and I, your reading was sort of emphasising the musicality over the sort of the stresses, and I was thinking, oh, I thought the stresses were sort of driving it, but maybe not. You know, it's a it's a different, diff, it's a different, a different approach to the art of reading a poem, um, as much as it, as much as it's there in the poem. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when I've been doing this for um, uh, poets and uh, sending them back the tracks, I, I get an assortment of really interesting reactions. And I think, uh, by and large, people are, like can't be, you know can't believe how different a poem can you know can come back to them. Um, it's fascinating. It, de- it definitely uh, your reading brought out more mystery in it than I thought was there. Um, I think I was more concerned with the impossibility of um, uh, positive assertion. That's that's in my mind. That's that's not what the poem's about, but that's what the voice of the poem was about. And I think you you sort of said what's being your your reading was more or less saying to me what what's being asserted here is mystery mm. and, te- and tension. tension and yeah. yeah, I think that's what that's where I went to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, good, excellent. Well, um, Dave, it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I really appreciate it. And maybe when you get more advanced in the uh, those poems uh, with speech recognition, um, you never know. I, I wouldn't mind if you want me to um, do something with one of them. I could probably do that. I find that would be very fascinating, particularly with some sort of uh, uh, computerized voice or something on <laughs> the back end. Of- <laughs> So using speech, speech, uh, speech to text software could be very interesting. Some of, some of them are very funny, um, and you know, obviously, I've, I've you know manipulated them along that way. But I'll, certainly, mm. when the when the book's ready, I'll send you. Send you oh, a copy. No, I, I really like that. So someone just recently sent me um, a poem um, by Donald Trump, which was basically a pastiche of taking yeah. the different things he'd said. <laughs> it's the most That's, hilarious thing. Yeah, I I use that in my teaching. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, they're very good. (laughs) Yeah, they're very, very good. Well, thanks again for um, spending time with us here at Lit Poetry, David. Um, Thank you for for having me and thank you for taking the the obvious time that you've taken to read the poem. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. It's absolutely a pleasure. And um, I'm just really keen on Australian poetry in general and trying to promote what people are doing. So, yeah, welcome to the Lit Poetry family. And um, hopefully we'll touch base again in the future. Thank you. Okay, thanks, David. Appreciate it. So it's time for us to wrap up this week's episode. We really appreciate all your support and I wanted to personally thank the three people who made donations recently to the Lit Poetry platform. These are some of our very first donations that we received and we feel very affirmed by your generosity. This money will be channeled into hiring voiceover artists in the near future and ensure that we can keep creating quality audiovisual poems and start planning for season three. I also want to thank our subscribers and all those who regularly write comments on our YouTube videos. Your comments are great and they help us find a wider audience by bumping our videos up the YouTube algorithm. We'll finish by listening one more time to the poem. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Lagoon by David Musgrave This is where I come from if it's true to say I come from somewhere, not just anywhere south of the imagination, where they came from, 
ended up. Warty hills of the Monaro or an Irish quag. Its lagoon, with wind-tussocked, wrinkled hills worn down to a murmur that claims me. Flat-skied, convict-shaped earth. The barren sweep from Tannis Mount knuckled with Bathurst quartz, small and obedient noon shadows. This is where justice jammed them, impatient and impenitent, forebears transported for a brace of crimes, possession of a stolen lamb, highway robbery and other nameless filchings cancelled by oblivion. It's hard to tell exactly where it was. The lagoon has forgotten itself. Drowned under Chifley's dam's green skin brailed by metallic rain. Or a mired bend in Campbell's River, where dragonflies whirr in a spectral frenzy like solid drops of petrol darting in the sun. I have inherited their future born of silent massacres, patient weathering of the cold fastness of hills and endurance of each summer's baked mirages. They mastered the art of sticking to the narrow furrows of their lives, whereas I have learnt only the art of streets. Sailing between their gutted shores on that new ocean. Traffic. Every trace of them has vanished. There is a school there now, where children yet to learn that dreams are what make death real play in the stark sun. Horse studs gather along the creek and they stand there, Fluid flanks shiny in the wintered light, chewing and staring down imposters in their midst. Time has stolen it. Evaporated family mysteries like the slow death of a photograph of the old farm. Like neap days, pinched of history. listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.